What is a cynic? A man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Anyone who lives within their means suffers from a lack of imagination. True friends stab you in the front. Just three of the countless epigrams of Oscar Wilde. This great wit of the English language needs no introduction, I'm sure. A quarter of controversy for his whole life, and ultimately a tragic martyr, in his own eyes at least. As a young man, he spent four years studying at Magdalen College, Oxford. There, the friends he made, and the influence of two tutors, Walter Pater and John Ruskin, remained with him for the rest of his brief life. With me to discuss the life of the man who could resist everything except temptation are Davis Rivera, a master's student in film aesthetics at Pembroke College, Yannick Lambert, a DPhil in classical Indian religion and language, also at Pembroke College, and Connor Malloy, a master's student in French literature, also from Pembroke College. Thank you very much for joining me. Davis, perhaps we could start with Wilde's early life. He was born in in 1854 in Dublin. What environment did he grow up in? Uh, well, he is the son of Lady Speranza Wilde and his father, who were both born in Dublin, as you said, and his birth name was Oscar Fingal O'Flattery Wills Wilde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his mother was a famous poet and also was very outspoken in, you know, her politics and Wilde and his brother Willie from a very early age uh, looked at her with admiration and also awe. Would you say that she was a literary role model that Wilde aspires to? She to was. She to. was a, a literary role model and even when he, as late as when he was at Oxford, he looked at her, you know, along with Keats and the Greeks as a inspiration rather than as a, you know, maternal figure. Um, but his father was also a very influential man in, in Dublin intellectual society. He, he was, was. A, a surgeon. Indeed. Connor, you, you uh, said earlier they had a bit of a sibling rivalry with his, his brother. Yeah, so his brother uh, went to Trinity College before him. and then There's a Trinity College Dublin. There's Trinity the, College the, the, Dublin. Dublin, yeah. yeah. So obviously they were there together. And there was a bit of a sibling rivalry. Uh, there is an aphorism which Wilde says... I should have written that down. Well, we might be able to find it. We, we yeah, have, we have yeah, various yeah, books yeah. open on the table before. <laughs> well, yes, and, and in his later years, or when you know, when he was at Oxford, or slightly after after Oxford, he, I felt, I think he felt a lot of shame about Willie, and apparently paid him to grow a beard so that people wouldn't make the connection, the familial connection between the two. That's astonishing. Right. The thing I didn't realize before I started reading for this show is yeah. how successful a classicist. Wilde was as a student, because yes. he, he goes up to Trinity College Dublin to read classics um, yeah, right. in 1871. Right. Yeah, uh, Oscar Wilde fell in love with the classics from like early age onwards, and he kind of lived in the ancient Greek world, so to speak. <laughs> he was very much enamoured with the Greek pantheon as well, so he kind of fancied himself already as a young man to be walking on some Arcadian landscape surrounded by the Greek gods, and it's kind of reflected also in his later works and his, his um, perception of, of beauty and of aesthetics as well. The, in uh, the way he relates to Christianity and religion and such, because there was always a heavy pagan element within his works, and it is kind of taken from these classical works. As well. So he sees himself as, mm. maybe this taking it too far, as some sort of latter-day Greek philosopher yeah, king, almost. Philosopher king, mystic even, to an extent, you could argue, mm. because he felt like that modernity is essentially an empty period of history, in the sense that um, he felt that the technological society in which we live is, in a way, brutalising, and it's 
um, devoid is, is devoid of a deeper meaning, and he was looking for a deeper meaning in beauty, and that was mediated for him through the classics. Yeah. I was just going to say, he also had an inspirational uh, teacher of classics at, at Trinity called mm-hmm. Mafferty, um, who encouraged him to, to apply for the scholarship at Oxford, which he then mm-hmm. went on to get. And they also travelled um, through Italy together, and there, of course, this is one of the, the main places where you want to go when you are interested in classics. So. In fact, I, I seem to recall reading somewhere mm-hmm. that he... Um, so they travel, he travelled with Mafferty during his time at, at Magdalen, mm-hmm. and he had to rusticate for a term because he arrived back late from this, right. this trip. Yeah, he did, he, with a friend as well. And then he, I think he ended up charming, you know, one of the, the people at Magdalen into, you know, not having to pay a fine for his lateness. Yeah, yeah. but we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves uh, now. So is there anything before his time at Trinity that we feel we should... To touch on, I think uh, his his household um, in Dublin was open to a lot of intellectuals of the period. So his family were acquainted with Yeats, for instance, mm-hmm. the influential poet. And as a child, he was exposed to to many ideas, contemporary ideas that the, a normal child wouldn't have been exposed to, due to the controversy that his mother inspired with her poetry, sort of the nationalistic poetry that she. Oh, she was kind of an early Irish nationalist. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and a very powerful figure, I think. There's a connection between Wilde saying somebody like Orson Welles, who was exposed as a child, who had a powerful mother, was exposed to these ideas very early on. And in order to stay in the room as a child full of adults who are bouncing ideas off one another, you have to hold your own to a certain extent. And Wilde learned very early on that to tell a good story was perhaps more important than to tell the truth, for instance. This great literary mind that we see later in his life, it didn't necessarily come from nowhere. It came from this sort of intellectual milieu that he's grown up with from a very... Yeah, exposed to, He would want people to think that it came from nowhere. Yeah, that's a big part of his personality is, you know, as an aesthete, he is supposed supposed to put on the airs of being you know, self-made without the influence of his mother. Yeah. He cultured his own myth quite yeah. successfully. He did, he did. He later said that, you know, in my opinion, a man should create his own myth, which I agree with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he won the, the top classics prize at, at uh, Trinity Dublin. Trinity Foundation Scholarship and the Berkeley Gold Medal. And as, as Connor said, on the encouragement of Mafferty, he takes mm. up this demi-ship at Maudlin. It's a very strange name. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm at Maudlin myself, and I've known nowhere else that has this particular term. Right. Yeah, demi-ship. And yeah, and for someone who was, this is sort of jumping ahead a bit, but, you know, someone who spoke for the future, who was never, you know, uh, very interested in the present, you know, he's either, you know, hearkening back to the greats, or thinking about, you know, future readership. The contemporary or the modern voice of his generation would probably have been Matthew Arnold, who, well, while he was at Maudlin, you know, Wilde won the Newdigate Poetry Prize, the grand prize of, mm-hmm. of poetry, at which Matthew Arnold also won when he was at Oxford. And when reaching out to share this news with Matthew Arnold, you know, one wouldn't expect someone like Wilde to want the respect of, of Arnold, but that did seem to be important to him, you know, to get some kind of validation from... From the, the respected yeah. right. um, establishment figure. You know, looking both ways, he wants to be his own in, individual standalone genius, but also wanting to... Right. He's a little older, because he, re- he reads Greats, the undergraduate Greats course yes. at Magdalene. He's a little older he than is. the other 
uh, students. He matriculated he the day after his 20th birthday. Yeah, 1974, I think. 1874. 1874. Yeah. Unless he's still around somewhere. <laughs> 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 he is, the Cancerville ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Um, More than good but he hid this fact, mm-hmm. as you, as Davis was saying before, he, he uh, yeah, lied about his age, didn't he? Right, yeah, a big part of his life, lying about his age. Uh, in fact, in A Ideal Husband, he introduces Lord Goring, saying he's 34, but always lies about his age, which Lyle would do, even under oath, you know, on trial, lied about his age, saying he was two years younger, though even of an advanced age, those two years meant a lot to him. Is he uncomfortable in his own skin? Is that putting it... Yeah, which is a shame because, you know, though the demyship led to, you know, or his time at Oxford is vastly influential and he wouldn't, arguably would maybe not made it as far as he eventually did. If he hadn't matriculated to Oxford, he would have been a man of his age. He wouldn't have had to lie because he lost those three years and that, you know, set the course for the rest of his life, you know, wearing this mask of... A younger man. Yeah, but it also meant that he was constantly bending and playing with the truth, which is a theme running through. And, and that sure. gave him sort of license to do that. So I think in a way it was not necessarily a completely negative thing. No, 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 no. There's no. also this phrase um, from Phrases and Philosophies for the Use of the Young, where he says that the first duty in life is to be as artificial as possible. And it's kind of reflected in this playing around with his age, with his yeah. whole identity. And putting on different masks, so to speak, throughout his life. And, and you, yeah, I was going to say, and uh, you know, you being in, in French literature, I think that has a lot to do with Stendhal, who mm. also. <laughs> well, he took up a completely different name okay. to start with. Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Or who was looking ahead rather than yeah. uh, a generate or you know the generational voice that was fading at the time. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, so we can come back to talk a lot more about his time at Oxford, but I feel that we'll just take that that link up because a few years later he's spending a lot of time in Paris Mm. and is greatly influenced, models himself after his previous generation of of French writers. So we mentioned uh, Stendhal and you also talking about um, Baudelaire. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you, but, want to, do you want to develop this for us a bit? Sure. So um, there's the decadent movement in France, which happens towards the end of the 19th century, uh, greatly influenced by Baudelaire. Wilde kind of jumps onto this and brings it to England. Now, in, in English literature, it's seen more as a movement of um, aesthetics. It's kind of aestheticism is what it's labelled as. The decadence is, is more of a French phenomenon. Um the pivotal book in the decadent movement is a book by a chap called Wismans Arubour, uh, which appears in the picture of Dorian Gray. It is the little yellow book that Dorian, that poisons Dorian. And this was seen as the turning point in, in the French decadent period. Uh, it was also an extension of naturalism that came through Zola. Uh, in fact, it took naturalism. Arguably, decadence takes naturalism as far as it can possibly go. Wilde was also in and around Paris at the time of the, the symbolist poets. So he attended um, Malarmé, held um, every Tuesday. Tuesday, he had a meeting of poets and friends, and they discussed poetry and read their poetry to one another. Oscar Wilde attended a couple of these sessions. So he really was in and amongst the French intellectuals of the time, along with other people like Whistler, um, and he also had a memorable evening with Proust, too, I believe. He had yeah. a memorable evening with uh, Marcel Proust, yeah. Um, it's a bit anecdotal, but what happened was Proust invited him to dinner. 
And when that evening, Bruce was slightly late returning back to his house. And when he got to his house, Bruce said, well, is, is the Englishman here? And uh, his servant said, yes, his servant. But he took one look in the dining room and then went to the bathroom. He's still not returned. And then Wilde comes out of the bathroom, meets Bruce. And Bruce says, are you okay? Is everything okay? And uh, Wilde says, uh, uh, yes, yes, but I, I thought you were, we were dining alone. And then I saw your parents and I, I really couldn't bear it. And uh, apparently afterwards when he left, they told him that Wilde had said that the decor was terribly ugly. <laughs> which is part of the reason why he left. <laughs> How do we receive this anecdote? Does it come from Wilde or from Proust or from... From Elman. Oh, from Elman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. so, um, I think it's about Proust, yeah. Yeah. yeah just to say, say for our listeners that we have, in fact, two copies <laughs> open on the table of Richard Elman's biography of Oscar yeah. Wilde from right. the late 1980s. Yeah. Sure, Pulitzer um, Prize winner, yeah. But the, that's that's the, the beauty, you know, that, that's the, the core of Wilde's life is all anecdotal. Sort of his chief quote in all of Maudlin was, you know, how he'll, every every morning he'd wake up and say, I don't know, I, how can I live up to my blue china? Yeah, this is this, this, this fantastic uh, witticism that he, he had this beautiful set of, of right. blue china that he got right. for himself for his Maudlin rooms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he felt somehow kind of inadequate. And if, yeah, if you look at his bill for just the, the amount of goblets and <laughs> yeah. and cups and, and chalices that he bought is, is extraordinary. I don't know where he kept it all. <laughs> We've all been in his quarters and it's not, it's not that big. Yeah. Yeah. Janet, do you want to, uh, yeah, there was another thing I just wanted to mention uh, as far as the connection between um, Wilde and French literature is concerned. I think that through Huisman's uh, Averbourg, um, he discovered the paintings of uh, Gustave Moreau or he developed some sort of affection for them. And uh, the symbolist paintings of Gustave Moreau, they are um, very influential, especially on Oscar Wilde's Salome as well, and his depiction of Salome as an oriental beauty, as an oriental queen that is also um, a temptress and a seductive person at the same time. And so um, he was very much influenced by this uh, depiction of the Orient as the other, so to speak, the other that is at the same time the object of both sexual fantasy but also of, of violence in the same sense. So it combines, combines the two. And I think that's one of the, the main tropes also in French decadent literature, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, uh, just bringing up Baudelaire um, briefly as well, both Huismans and uh, Wilde take from Baudelaire this idea um, that nature is uh, a terrible uh, force. The force of nature is aggressive and needs to be fought against. So the whole premise of Huismans à is that the, the protagonist is doing everything he can to fight nature and eventually inevitably nature wins out and 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 he loses uh, so in some ways they paraphrase Baudelaire's argument uh, written in on modernity and his idea where he, he pits artifice against nature and he argues that everything that bad about man comes from nature and the only everything good and virtue comes from artifice and art and Oscar Wilde is, is picking up on these themes in his Absolutely. development as a, as a writer. And, and one more thing is uh, Gautier, Théophile Gautier, in his preface to his book Mademoiselle de Maupin, written in the 50s, in, in the 1850s, the whole preface is about this idea that art should not be useful, um, which the preface of Dorian Gray then takes up much later again uh, in the 90s. This art for art's sake really isn't a new idea, in, in Wilde, it's something that he has very much taken from the French literary developments of the late 19th century. 
we'll come back to all of this, particularly um, Chalamet, which we can talk more about. But I think it's time to sort of get back, rewind about 15 years, mm. back to his time at Oxford, mm. which, as right. I think I said in the introduction, was just been a very influential time on his life. So he, he met several of his great lifelong friends. There's uh, Michael Ross, I think. Robbie Ross. Robbie Ross, Robbie yeah. Ross. Yeah, yeah, his first yeah. love right. affair, homosexual yeah. love affair. Uh, J.E.C. Bodley, his friend, not at Malvin, but at Balliol, who, and his, of his time at Oxford, we know most of it based on his diary that he kept as a student, uh, which has little to nothing to do with his studies or <laughs> what he was reading at the time, uh, and more to do with their social life. Yeah, he, was, he was a really great friend. There was also William Walsford Ward and Hunter Blair were, I would say, would, would close out. And they, they were actually at Maudlin, and they were his neighbors, and they met right away. And I think a lot of what later inspired the decay of lying, or at least the way that he situates the characters in the, way, in the decay of lying, when you read Bodley's diary, are modeled after their host evenings of debauchery, or after Wilde would entertain <laughs> guests, they would usually end up the, with the three of them uh, talking to one another and formulate these ideas, which were, you know, diametrically opposed to what was going on during the party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get the sense from some uh, talking to you and reading the notes that he, he's he's not uh, one of his tutor's favorite students in the sense that he doesn't necessarily always do his work on time. He's not again late back to term coming from Italy. When he eventually gets the first, I think he he says. Oh, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the bad boy done good or something. <laughs> well, he had, he had an advantage over most of the other students in his class and at his college because of his excellent preparation at Pretoria and also Trinity College Dublin. And he could treat um, his tutors at Oxford with a certain amount of conceitedness, arrogance, because not only were they not the ones who would eventually give him marks at the end of his second and fourth year, but um, chances are knew more than them, even though he put on the airs <laughs> of someone who didn't study at all. Yeah, And he did say that he wouldn't apply to be a, a crusty old Don uh, right. afterwards, but he actually did apply to be a fellow and was rejected because of his controversial behavior. He did. And in one of the many nights that I've, I've previously mentioned, he made the comment that he would soar above Donship by saying, I'll be a poet, a writer, a dramatist, somehow or other, I'll be famous, or if not famous, notorious. <laughs> so he feels yeah. he has a sort of higher calling than, sure. than, yeah, than, than a mere professorship at Oxford University. Exactly. <laughs> Though he did brag about a lunch that he had at All Souls with the fellow, um, which Lady Speranza took with great pride. Uh, Yannick, I, I don't know if you could uh, tell us about, but there, there are two tutors that do influence him quite a lot. There's um, Peter and, and John Ruskin, of course. Yeah. How does he come across them? What uh, does he get from them? Well, um, I, I want to focus on Peter because he had a massive influence on um, Oscar Wilde's later, later works and especially his homosexuality as well, because Peter as a historian of the Renaissance and uh, wrote a very influential book which also influenced uh, Oscar Wilde and um, he said that the book had a very strange influence on his life. He said that in De Profundis. De Profundis is the thing he writes, almost, like 
a year or two before his his death. It's, it's yeah. after his jail term. We'll talk about all this later. But he's a very different man he's very writing different that. Man. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So he's in a very different position, like both socially, economically, and in, yeah, he's in, in, in great, great poverty. Great poverty. Yeah, indeed. And um, so, and he there's of course this famous depiction of Saint Sebastian as well in um, that massively influenced him. This 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 Christian martyr who became kind of the the saint of the homosexuals throughout history. And um, and it is this combination of both aestheticism, of self-sacrifice, of overcoming, and also of beauty that is gained through pain that massively impacted on, on Oscar Wilde and is one of the major th themes of his literature and also his um, perception of the world in his later later life. So, so, yeah. so from Pater, you feel Wilde mm. develops his, his sense of himself as, as a martyr, almost in the... The Christian tradition. Well, it was definitely an influence. Yeah, yeah. I, I assume that he kind of saw himself in a similar light already in an earlier stage, but he kind of just confirmed that or gave it um, a stronger impetus. And, and Ruskin, Connor, is it, um... Ruskin Wilde is part of uh, Ruskin's group, railway line builders, young students that Ruskin got together for. Mm kind of reform in, in local society. Ruskin was much more the, if you had uh, if you had two people sitting on each shoulder, Ruskin would be the angel and Pater would be the devil <laughs> uh, in that line. So Ruskin, very, very hugely influential art critic uh, associated with the Pre-Raphaelites, um, famous across uh, England. Wilde was really thrilled to, to meet him. I think Pater offered a, a sort of darker side. Maybe Pater offered... A juicier side to life than Ruskin could offer. Mm -hmm. Ruskin was much more clean cut, and there's there's a lot of scandal uh, surrounding Ruskin and his marriage affair, precisely because he was too clean cut almost. Whereas Pater, in the final pages of the Renaissance, talks about living life with a gem like flame, which has become very famous. Um, so I think uh, Wilde balances these two influential figures in his life whilst at Oxford. And then maybe edges towards Pater towards the end. I'm not sure what you think about that, Davis, I think. Pater toward the end? Yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah. think definitely. Well, I don't... Hmm. That's interesting because, you know, if you when you think of Pater, you think of the aesthetic influence that he had on Wilde, whereas with uh, Ruskin, it's more of an ethical approach. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It'd be interesting to kind of um, analyze that through the lenses of what Nietzsche wrote down in um, The Birth of Tragedy, like the position between Apollo the god of um, beauty, of aesthetics, of everything that is light and clear, and there's Dionysus, the god of dissolution. And you could argue that Ruskin was more of the Apollonian, more of an Apollonian influence on Wilde, whereas um, Pater kind of functioned as Dionysus. He was the, the principle of, of dissolution in sense and of, of, um, of ecstasy, you could argue. I would say that Oscar Wilde's life was always like kind of torn between these two principles. Of course, it might be a bit artificial to apply Nietzsche's categories to, to his life, of course, but there are, there are certain parallels, you could argue. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and also there was, uh, as far as um, Pater was concerned, there was also some homosexual tension, mm -hmm. some suggestion of homosexual tension with some of his students, mm -hmm. some of the dinners he held in his quarters, whereas Ruskin was quite the opposite. In fact, some people think that Ruskin was asexual, and, mm -hmm. and um, there was a court case about the annulment of, of Ruskin's marriage, that he, and it, an annulment on the grounds of the fact that he wasn't consummated, in fact. So you really did have two opposite strands here pulling on, on Wilde and his ideas about beauty as well. So he, he leaves Oxford, he graduates a very good mark, and he set himself up in London, 
But he also uh, takes this, maybe skipping ahead a few years, takes this lecture tour of America, which lasts nearly a year, I think. Yes, uh, a lecture tour of America that, you know, again, probably influenced by Pater's socialist leanings, or like he, he, he felt it necessary to ingratiate himself into uh, the working classes and to, get, and to visit unconventional places that, you know, your, your average... I don't know if you consider it wild and academic, but, you know, someone who is giving lectures, you know, for for the young and for, you know, the, the educated classes, you know. So he would go to places like Louisiana and, you know, want to go aboard the ship and, you know, down into the, you know, the gallows and, and, and see, you know, get his hands dirty, so to speak. He, he makes a lot of money. He also made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah but, well, because well, he needs it, because he's living very extravagantly. Right. He, he's, he's, right. Uh, and again... And when people would ask him later, you know, what he has been up to, people from, you know, friends from colleges and whatnot, and that, that was his stock response was, you know, well, lecturing and getting rich, you know, which is exactly <laughs> what he was doing. And he calls himself a professor of aesthetics. A professor of aesthetics, <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Baudelaire talks of the dandy, and he describes the figure of the dandy and this idea that what is on the surface represents what's inside. It's, like it's a spirit, there's a spiritual element to, to the way that people dress and the way that people... Uh, represent themselves mm -hmm. and Wilde uh, takes these ideas and and there have been many dandies again in in Paris for for a long time uh, when Wilde comes to uh, takes it up and he infuses his life with the idea that the surface is very important uh, as he says in the preface of Dorian Gray all art is surface and symbol and um, I believe actually when he toured America that his dress was part of the contract he was, uh, <laughs> which is something that he learned at Oxford. You know, formal wear being. Yeah. You know, I developed a great affection for that once. A great affection for yeah. the formal wear of the, the dinners and you know yeah. dining nightly at the mitre. I realize I haven't mentioned the date. This is happening in the early eighteen eighties. Yes, it's kind of eighteen eighty one two. He he makes the right the tour, which is fairly impressive considering that at that time all that had been published were the poems. And Vera, but you know, Dorian Gray had not been published. Mm -hmm. An idle husband, importance in being earnest. Well, because because all his, one might say, great work, the work that um, survives best, is all written in the final you know, decade of his life, yes. in the eighteen ninety onwards. Um, but I guess this poem Ravenna is was the um, right, which was written at Oxford. Uh, but yes, yeah, so it's through the 1880s, he's, he's got a huge reputation, but continued to expand it, he's living in, in Paris, in London. Um, but he also gets married, um, <laughs> yeah. perhaps more might say surprisingly, anyone wants to, to come in about his, his marriage, he has two children as well, I think. He does. Right. Constance Lloyd, and with his children Cyril and Vivian. Yep. Yeah. And Constance, you know, has commented and, you know, and I think loved him till the very, the bitter ends. And, you know, some have, s have said that, you know, his homosexuality might have been... His first homosexual experience was after his marriage, in fact. Yeah, so when he was. did get married, he was... Might have considered... I think he maybe thought beyond the boundaries of sexuality, given his Greek education. Yeah, yeah like you, you were saying about this, that... Yeah, yeah, as well, uh, I guess in the 19th century, many people wouldn't necessarily need to identify themselves either as homosexual or heterosexual. I mean, of course, homosexuality, as we understand it these days, is very, was very much frowned upon these days. But, but it's, it's illegal. It's illegal. It was illegal, yeah. in yes. fact, and it led to his imprisonment as well. Yeah. Gross indecency. Um, so, and that kind of 
plays again into this whole idea of leading a double life, which is very much one of the main topics in the picture of Dorian Gray as well. So there's this, this, this life on the surface, and he says that surfaces are very important, but there's also the life underneath what is hidden, what goes on behind the scene, and that is um, very much part of his of his notion of, of aesthetics as well, that there's two layers to everything. There is, on the one hand, there's the surface, and on the other hand, there is the, the what is frowned upon by, by society and what can only be understood by the genius. Yeah, I, I, how were his family affected by the whole scandal that later... They had to change their name, they moved to Europe and, and mm. changed their name, in fact. Um, mm. yeah. But for, for as, as far as we know as well, he was a very loving father, so to be separated mm. from his children yeah. for two years must have been horrific. M many of his short stories that he wrote, The Happy Prince, uh, mm. for instance, he would read to his children to their great delight. It must have been a really terrible time to be separated from his family that he that especially he considering he also lost his mother at the same time right yeah right and you could argue that the profundest is which is this love letter he wrote to um lord alfred douglas um is partly triggered by the death of his mother and it's one of the first things he mentions in the letter as well how badly his mother's passing away affected him and how it um, made his um, situation in was in prison even worse and so that is definitely a huge influence in that as well yeah well, so Yang, you mentioned Lord Alfred Douglas, who yeah. is the major figure in the final ten years of, of Wilde's uh, life. How did they meet, and they they became lovers, didn't they? Introduced by Robert Ross in in London, Lord Alfred Douglas was an undergrad at Magdalen. Wilde said, uh, "Oh, I went to Magdalen myself. I'll come up and see you sometime." And they struck up. They fell in love, really. Uh, for Wilde, Douglas embodied everything that was Greek. He said he was like a beautiful Greek boy. Uh, he was also the son of the Marquess of Queensbury, who invented the Queensbury rules. Queensbury rules of boxing, yes. Yeah, and uh, turned out to be quite an aggressive man. And the cause of Wilde's demise, you could argue as well. And the cause of Wilde's. Well, there's yeah. any arguing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so they really had uh, a whirlwind love affair. Mm -hmm. Much has been written about it ever since. Uh, well, what sort of time are we talking about? 1893, 94. 1894. Yeah. Um, I mean, already he's now, you know, become a genuinely successful playwright in London. Yeah, now, yeah. Lady yeah. Windermere's fan has been very successful. Yeah. Chalamet has at least been performed in, in Paris, although... Right. Yeah, well, can you tell me why it wasn't performed in England? Can someone tell us why that uh, Chalamet wasn't performed in England? It was banned by Lord Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> Even though uh, Wilde was able, which is a, a big... Um, ambition of his to get Sarah Bernhard to portray Salome. Was she a famous actress? Of the, she was yeah. a famous, yeah, very, oh, the most famous, famous actress of yeah. her time and who had turned down previous uh, offers to appear in his plays, Duchess of Padua. I think Mary Anderson also declined mm -hmm. as far as it not being allowed to be performed in England based on the representation of religious figures, I think. Yeah, Saint Jane, uh, Saint John the Baptist being a particular interest of Wilde's, dating back all the way to Oxford when he was first propositioned to as a, a possible ma uh, Mason. He, you know, often joked about uh, Saint John the Baptist. This might have, you know, counted against him in the long run. But, <laughs> but yeah, so so um, Chalamet not being performed in, in England aside, he's now a successful playwright. Yes. But he meets uh, Alfred uh, Douglas, nicknamed Bosey. Bosey, yeah, yeah. Bosey. It doesn't get any work done. He complains that when he, whenever he's with Bozy, he doesn't 
get any decent work done. Yeah. And, and Yannick uh, leads into this double life that you were talking about. Queensbury finds out, or there's rumour. He's a calling card. Yeah. Yeah, yeah calling him a sodomite. Yeah, spelled wrong, sodomite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder what, what would have um, rankled with, with Wild Moore, the uh, accusation of the spelling. Well, he, <laughs> when, he was, when he was at Oxford, he made a point of pointing out, you know, he got low marks on a paper and he said, let me point out that this, you know, person spelled physic rather than physics. He said clearly an, you know, uncultivated, you know, uh, Philistine <laughs> to not include the S. I mean, between, from the various stories you, you said, I mean, you know, one can see how Wilde might not have necessarily ingratiated himself with, with people in, in power and responsibility. You can say he, he seemed to have a knack of rubbing people up Possibly the wrong way, which is something <laughs> that he acquired at Oxford. I mean, but because from all you know, judging from uh, different accounts, it seems like he came here, though well educated because of Futura and Trinity. He had the Irish accent, he was very naive. Apparently, he was you know, he embarrassed himself fairly often. His first night in formal hall, he was seated next to an athlete in his third year. And the, you know he was he was speaking well, and then he thought, okay, well, you know, I've ingratiated myself here. Now's the time to present my card to this person, not knowing that this type of thing was not done. So he decided, rather than continue to embarrass himself, he would rise above, you know, the his, his fellow students, which of course he did. Um, we're running short of time, so we should fast forward to the disaster. So uh, Queensby's left this calling card. There's. A sort of series of court cases back, back and front. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> well, well, Queen, well they, there were two trials. Were two trials Queensbury's yeah. trial and Wilde's trial. Queensbury was acquitted, mm. and then Wilde yeah. was, Wild was uh, arrested very shortly after mm. in the same month, yeah. or in the same span of time. Mm. Um, because Wilde sued Queensbury for... Wilde countersued, which was, which was actually the cause of his downfall. If he had not done that, he... And, you know, obviously, as, as Connor mentioned, you know, it was love and also pride. Prompted this, this countersuit, uh, Wilde you know, riding high after the success of, of a woman of no importance and an idle husband, etc. And also, you know, he had written Important of Being Earnest. Which premiered a week before the, 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 the court case. It, was, it did. We had a phenomenal success. And, yeah, so he countersued probably... Ex- I don't know what he was expecting exactly, but uh, yeah, then the trial happened and he treated it as if it were a salon or as if he were, you know, entertaining uh, Robbie Ross and, and Whistler, etc. Not getting a real sense of the seriousness of what was going on, you know. And so he, he gets sentenced to two years hard, hard labor. labor. Unsurprisingly, this deeply, deeply affects him. Um, <laughs> Yannick, yeah. you, yeah. you know about his writing at this time. Yeah. Well, he experienced um, the whole imprisonment as something very humiliating, of course, and as something very limiting as well, because um, he was not able to enjoy the privilege he used to enjoy, and um, he felt very much diminished in that sense. But also, he was able to, to read and to write in prison, so he, in comparison to other prisoners at the time, he did enjoy a couple of privileges and took advantage of that. And, that's where he um, started to, to reflect on his own imprisonment as well from, from various perspectives. So on the one hand, he was, of course, very much still um, the same aesthetician and um, 
therefore he he saw the whole thing as some sort of challenge and as a spiritual test even and that's one of the first things he mentions in the letter de profundis which is you know his reflection is time in prison b beyond being just a love letter is that he um sees the pain he experiences every day and the humiliation as some sort of spiritual task that will make him um able to rise above everyone else just like jesus was able to do that and he in fact compares himself to christ and to other martyrs as well and also to hebrew prophets which were um deemed to uh, admonish the people but at the same time they were often rejected by the people so like society doesn't understand their prophetic words and that's um he because he's ahead of his time yeah ahead of his time in a way and also beyond and he's just like you know nobody's able to comprehend fully what he what he's on about and Hence, also, that kind of plays into, again, the whole idea of, of the double life and that is hidden from the public. Just like the prophet in, in, in Salome is, is not to be seen, he's hidden in a cistern and you can only hear his voice. And um, so he compares himself to, to, you know, to a prophet, so to speak. And he kind of uses the, the image of Christ, of Christ as an artist, which was, I guess, very similar to the, the one um, employed by William Blake, Christ as a creative genius, as a divine human being, who um, is not only uh, a saviour for, for um, while in fact Christ is not a saviour in, in the religious sense, but in the artistic sense, and he, he considers Christ to be um, um, a creative genius who uses nice words and is spoken to in nice words, and that's kind of how Wilde, of course, depicted himself as well. And he also mentioned the fact that um, through this creative act, he was able to establish a religion of, of the faithless and um, a religion of people who don't need to believe in some supernatural deity, but who can redeem themselves through the very um, act of art. And you said this was a love letter, so he's gone yeah. back to Voici. Yeah, exactly. His... So he wanted to, to reconcile himself with Voici. And on the one hand, he... He, of course, complains to, to the Bosi about his um, situation in prison at the time. Uh, on the other hand, he also wants to reconcile with him. And he, he says that uh, I have made many mistakes in my life, but all these mistakes were due to, to my temper. They were due to my nature and I can't change it. These are, this is the tragic flaw in, 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 in my personality and I can't do anything against it, which is us back to um, Baudelaire and Baudelaire's idea that, that nature is essentially pitted against the artifice. And also back to the classics and you know, the whole notion of a tragical thought is, of course, a very classical idea. So he, at the same time, was admitting that he, he's committed mistakes, that he's, he's done mistakes. Um, at the same time, he tries to redeem himself through saying that it's not my fault. It's just the way I am. This is my mm. nature. This is my fate, almost. Yeah. And fate is a very important concept in, in Salome and also in De Profundis, and it's a re recurring theme. Yeah. So would you say in De, in De Profundis, he's drawing together all the rather sort of disparate themes of his mm. life, the classical education, mm. yeah. the religious upbringing in, in mm. Ireland, plus obviously his incredibly you know, flamboyant mm. existence and mm. language all coming together in this. Yeah, in this it context. kind of comes on together and there's loads of references and cross-references to um, his previous works and all of the intellectual artistic influences uh, that impacted on him in his earlier life. And it, it reads as a very, at times, uh, as a very shallow letter because he seems to be very superficial and he seems to be um, lauding himself above everyone else all the time whilst complaining about his own suffering and he uses you know a painter and he uses um, his previous relations with with men and women they are like employed by him as, as a means of just making him um, stand out from everyone else again as, as the as as a as a person who's highly cultured and 
who is also highly into to, to aesthetics again and above everyone else, in fact. We're nearly out of time, so we must come to his death and a very ignominious end for someone who lived as richly as he had done for much of his life. Yeah, and thankfully, our De Profundis, I think it should be pointed out, was not, wasn't published until after he died yeah, this and, in true. a heavily edited form mm. by Robbie Ross. Because it's I think he, he, yeah, he knew... And like, like you mentioned, their, their sort of covert egotism of the work, you know, is disguised as altruism, mm -hmm. you know, which sort of like falls in line with Desaad and Freud, as pointed out, you know, and sexual persona needed some time, you know, because considering the, the circumstances regarding his death. Because how do we think he died? He, he died in, in 1900. Right. 1900, either cerebral meningitis uh, or, you know, if we're going by his most celebrated historian, you know, biographer Richard Allman's book, it was syphilis that he contracted. There's no way of knowing mm -hmm. you know, what the truth is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He died in Paris, yeah. in poverty, mm. yeah. right. uh, in a hotel yeah. near the Seine. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I guess certainly in, in England, still in disgrace. From his time? Yes. yes. And a, a, a broken man. Uh, there's stories of him uh, begging for money of people that he knew, which he, he never would have done in, in the past. Um, yeah. A truly, yeah, broken man. But fortunately, his work lives on, as do his aphorisms. Yeah. And his, his grave now is visited by many, many people. Yeah. Um, where is he buried? In the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. Yeah. Big sphinx uh, over his grave. Yeah. And they have to clean it and recover it quite frequently because of the number of people that write uh, quite famously. Lots of people kiss the, the front of the Sphinx with lipstick. Uh, all his aphorisms are plastered over, um, over this Sphinx. The, the, one, <laughs> the one thing I would say is, in spite, I think part of his appeal lies in his humanity, actually. Mm -hmm. I think, although he did see himself as maybe prophetic, ahead of his time, Somebody who was very cultured, undoubtedly. He was, I mean, he got a double first at Oxford. It was justified. But I think and uh, he, he was somebody who was very human and was aware of the flaws of humanity, of his own humanity. And the one thing that he maintained and a theme that runs throughout his work is, is the need for hope, really. And that's what I get from a lot of his work is that he really believes in, in the need for, for hope. And that's a very human thing. And that's that's redemption, even to an extent. Mm -hmm. That's something that he never lost. That I feel like when people make the comparison of the the great wits of their age being uh, Wilde and Whistler, at least in the English-speaking countries, that's the key distinction between the two. Is that Wilde was full of hope. He was a genuinely good person, thanks in part to his teachers from Speranza, to Pater, to Robbie Ross. And you know his. You could read his aphorisms, and there, there's, there's never a cutting edge. Whereas with Whistler, he meant to harm you. You know, there, there's poison and there's malicious intent. Yeah. Do you have any any closing remark you'd like to make? Um, I think it's really interesting to look at um, Oscar Wilde's influence, especially in um, German literature in the early 20th century as well. And there's one poet I really admire a lot. His name is Stefan George. He's a bit controversial because he used concepts that were partly uh, misused by the Nazis later, as happened to many other authors. And um, Stefan George is very similar, but also quite different to Oscar Wilde in many senses. And But it kind of tells you a lot about how influential Oscar Wilde was and how he was used by, by later writers. And uh, Stefan George, he was also homosexual. 
and he was very much open about it because he also believed in the old uh, classical Greek ideals of uh, of, of masculinity and uh, used this artistic idea of l'art pour l'art very much in his poetry as well. So there's a beauty which is in itself beautiful and it doesn't need to serve any purpose. And I think that's an important lesson we can we can also all take from Oscar Wilde that beauty doesn't have to to serve any purpose except for being beautiful and being aesthetic, being being pl pleasant. And that's something that tends to be forgotten a lot, I think, in, in our world these days, where everything has to serve either um, an economic purpose or it needs to, to bring you further in life. We tend to forget that there, there's other things that, that could be valuable and that cannot be measured. And, um, and I think there's this famous quote, which you mentioned at the very beginning, that there's people who know the, the price of everything but the value of nothing. And I think that's one of the main lessons we can, we can take from Oscar Wilde. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's been a fascinating race through an incredible life. Next week, we'll be discussing the prime number theorem. Thank you. <laughs>